Hey guys, before we jump in, I want to tell you about what my friends are building at the Day One Syndicate. On this podcast, we talk a lot about Amazon's leadership principles and business mechanisms that can be applied to building many successful businesses. Well, the Day One Syndicate was formed by current and former Amazon employees to invest in some of the top former Amazonians doing just that, launching the next great startups using the leadership principles they've learned. Pretty cool. You can check out the Syndicate page on AngelList, and we'll also drop a link in the show notes. Now on to the show. Welcome to the Think Like Amazon podcast, the show where I sit down with former Amazon executives to discuss Amazon's unique principles and processes and tease out how you can apply them to grow and manage your business. I'm Tyler Wallace, a seven-year former Amazonian, current brand consultant, and your host as we learn to think like Amazon. Welcome to the Think Like Amazon podcast. Today, I'm pleased to welcome Maju Kulivila to the show. Maju was previously a vice president at Amazon. During his nearly eight years with the company, he managed all global logistics as well as all Amazon Prime fulfillment technology teams worldwide. In his role, he looked after the entire business unit spanning business, product, engineering, and operations. Earlier this year, Maju left Amazon to become the chief technology officer for Bolt, a startup that offers online one-click checkout technology to retailers. Maju, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tyler. Thanks for inviting me. I gave a very brief bio, and I know that you have a very accomplished career. So can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your work at Amazon? So I started with Amazon around 2013, started as a director for software development, mainly responsible for leading the inventory and catalog systems for the fulfillment space. And then two years into that job, I was lucky to be given the opportunity to run the whole Amazon's worldwide fulfillment technologies. That was a big role and a huge responsibility. So it's lucky to be given that. And I did that for the next five years or so. And then uh, after that, I was given an opportunity to go and run Amazon Global Logistics, which is more owning an entire business unit, which is what I did towards the end. So overall, I spent at Amazon close to eight years and had the opportunity to work across a few different areas and uh, part of some great history Amazon made it during that time. I think a lot of people listening to this will probably recognize that Amazon is delivering more of its own packages, and Amazon is also expanding its presence in more countries around the globe. So you spoke to your role in a lot of that growth. Can you give us a little bit more sense to how your organization grew in terms of scope and responsibilities during your time? I kind of had a fairly rapid growth while I was at Amazon. When I started, I had a team of somewhere around a couple of hundred engineers. And then when I took on the global fulfillment teams, uh, it went north of 1,000 or so engineers at that time. And in between, it kind of grew up to like a couple of thousand, including the field engineering and everything together. So again, being responsible for the fulfillment for Amazon during an interesting time when we were trying to go more into the same day delivery network was a big deal. That's a lot of changes and a lot of innovations were required to make sure that same day delivery can happen. And there were a couple of new programs that came out like Prime Now, Fresh, all of it required a whole new way of doing fulfillment. So I was lucky to be there and be part of a lot of that change at that time. 
And as part of running global logistics, they are, had the opportunity to even run everything all the way from the engineering and products and sales and operations uh, because we operate as a whole business unit. And uh, global logistics do sell logistics as a product to sellers. And so that was a great opportunity to kind of own that end to end and see what can be done there. And the interesting aspect there was I was running it during the pandemic. So global logistics, as you can imagine, was disrupted quite a bit during the pandemic. So we had to do a lot of things, a lot of innovation there at that time, try to stay afloat and keep everything running and make sure that everybody can get what they absolutely needed at that time. I think that's very unique, Maju. We all depended on Amazon in a big way during the pandemic, especially as things were shut down in many cities and locations. Amazon became the source of a lot of our goods and a lot of our purchases. At the same time, as you mentioned, it was a very interesting time to be managing through that internally at Amazon. I definitely saw some of that. I was still Amazon as well to 2020, but certainly didn't have the same vantage point that you had. Can you talk to us a little bit about as you had to pivot and innovate on the fly, what inputs did you rely on to make sure that you were innovating in the best way for Amazon customers? It's different at different times, right? Like whether that's trying to deliver Prime Now, which was the fast one hour fulfillment for customers, which didn't exist before that, or the same day fulfillment on how do we do everything much faster than ever before and do it without much of an error or trying to figure out global logistics during the pandemic, which was all like very distinct challenges. I'll, I'll start with the recent one, which is the global logistics side. For example, during pandemic, pretty much all of the passenger aircrafts can stop operating. And close to 50% of air cargo is transferred using the daily cargo of passenger air flight, which meant when all the passenger airplanes stop flying, 50% of the air cargo capacity just disappeared, which meant that there isn't a whole lot of opportunity for people to move things across the globe. And there's a lot of things were needed to be moved, like, for example, like all the protective equipments or the mask or the gloves, and pretty much all the protective equipments were manufactured in Asian countries like China and need to be distributed to the US and Europe. And when you don't have any capacity available and needs to move fast. So it forced the teams to really innovate fast to figure out what can be done. And it started by looking at what the customer needs are, right? Now, really kind of focusing on what the customer needs are and what's important, what's the priority right now? And what are the constraints, like truly looking at the constraints to making that happen and kind of going after it. In this particular case, the constraint is there. People need all the protective equipment. Even Amazon needed it for our own associates to keep it operational. We need to provide the masks and the gloves and the sanitizers and all this. And when it's not available, how do we bring that, make it available? And when the constraint is the air capacity. So what we had to do was scramble and come up with a whole air distribution delivery network in like a couple of weeks. So we scrambled, partnered with our air team, partnered with the customs brokerage team, partnered with the China operations team and the ground operations team, the technology teams to make sure that how can we build all of that? And in a couple of weeks, everything kind of came together and we started flying our own charters and distributing things from China and distributed across the US, across Europe, and made sure that everybody can have those. 
and we can continue to operate. Same way, how do we kind of make it available for customers so they can have it, they can buy it. You know, that was a great example of how do we really innovate to solve a need and do it so fast while collaborating with a lot of different people globally. That's a very interesting example there. And, you know, in my time at Amazon, there was always a strong focus on automation, become more operationally excellent by automating more of the processes that we have in a situation like that, where you had to really make a change very quickly in pulling a bunch of teams to address an unexpected scenario. How did you think about the direction you took in terms of unwinding some of the automation and adopting short-term manual processes versus trying to fit the solution within the systems and the processes already in place in the team? It's a great question. And this is something Amazon does really well, right? Which is how do we really unlearn our own constraints and move fast? It starts by the willingness to take some risk across the teams. Like, how do we move fast even at the cost of taking some risk? Now, the question is, what kind of risk are we taking? And this is why the Amazon concept of the one-way doors and two-way doors are super important. You know, if some of the decisions what we are making are a two-way door decision, which is a reversible decision, not a big deal, you can take them, figure out if, if that's working, that's great. If it's not working, okay, we can always reverse that decision and come back. And then there are one-way door decisions where you make a decision and you really cannot come back or you cannot deal with the consequences. And so identify more problems as two-way doors and then taking risk and moving fast on them is kind of the path we go after. For example, you know, trying to put things on a plane, you got to be very careful about the dangerous goods and, you know, what can actually go in the plane. That's a one-way door. So you really have to be careful. You don't move fast on those things. You go through every bit of the details and you dot all the I's and cross the T's before you do that. But how much we fill a plane, for example, and, you know, maybe the first few kind of run a little bit empty, as long as we can figure out the algorithms that can maximize the throughput of the planes, that we can figure out. You know, that's a risk we can take if we want to move faster. So really kind of separating that one-way doors and two-way doors and allowing people to take risk on those two-way doors and move fast and then truly having metrics around everything we do so that we can know and course correct ourselves on the fly. And those are things we really do to make sure that we can move fast and innovate in the scenarios. That's super fascinating. You talk about things like algorithms for the throughput of a plane. And I think that's easy for a lot of us maybe to take for granted, but there's a lot of sophistication and a lot of rigor behind some of those decisions. Manju, I want to get back to the scale of this fulfillment network that you led at Amazon and talk a bit about the leadership principle that Amazon has, which is invent and simplify. The leadership principle is defined as leaders expect and require innovation and invention from their teams and always find ways to simplify. They're externally aware, look for ideas from everywhere, and are not limited by not invented here. As we do new things, we accept that we may be misunderstood for long periods of time. So going back again to this global organization that you led, what were the external sources of ideas that you look to or that you encourage your team to look to in order to figure out what did the customer need five years down the road, 10 years down the road to make sure that you were innovating, inventing and building the things that the customer would need down the road? Yeah. You talk about invent and simplify. Kind of think of a, a one simple example, which is probably more internal to Amazon, but it's a very interesting example we have. And it's also talk about how we reinvent ourselves sometimes to make things better. 
Amazon has this internal process of counting inventory. You know, we have to count inventory every day to make sure that our physical and virtual records match. And it's a very expensive manual process. And so we have a lot of software and systems and people and processes on how do we do that? And it's quite expensive, and we have fairly sophisticated tools that make sure we do that systematically. But then came this whole idea of, you know, one of our computer vision scientists came up with the idea that, hey, what if we can detect these defects using a computer vision system? What if there is a way to do that? So, okay, we were like, all right, let's take a look at it. Let's see what happens there. They went and came back with a new algorithm using the convolutional neural network algorithms to see, okay, how do we detect these defects within some kind of a threshold? But the big problem was we are already investing a lot of money into this current process and we have a lot of software and systems. So, you know, should we kind of go after this now or just continue to make that better? And what's the returns on that? You know, and those scenarios, what we do is we kind of created a small team and we kind of say, okay, let's continue to move forward with this idea and see what can be done. And let's see some impact or the results on it very quickly. And if the results are great, we can double down and move forward. Fast forwarding that, like put like around 10 people on that and they went and created the, you know, the computer vision system, the hardware, the software, the lighting. And fast forwarding it to now, all Amazon fulfillment centers, the automated fulfillment centers use computer vision-based counting right now. I mean, it's a massive process automation where people don't need to do this manually anymore. It's a complete waste of process before. And now the computer vision system can just do it. And that frees up all the people to do more work that are helpful for customers. So I always think of processes like that and kind of use that as an example for people to kind of think, okay, here is something we do today and something we do tomorrow could may not be an improvement of what we do today. It could be a completely different way of doing it. It might take advantage of complete new technology and the process might be very different. And so keep our mind open to that newer way of looking and doing these things, especially by using advanced technology, is super important in this kind of scenario. And then the question really is, how do we do that at scale, right? Now, that's like one example. Like, how do we get hundreds of teams to do that? And the approach I've seen and I've taken is really connecting the teams to the customers. Take out any additional layers between like the engineers and the product teams that are working on any product. Have them connect directly with the customers and really understand what's going on so that you are not just building some things. You really understand what you are going after. You're working backwards from a customer need. You are obsessed about your customer needs and you can see what they are doing now. You can see what they need in the future. And every single team can do that then all of them can innovate at scale rather than trying to bring it tops down from a leadership perspective. So doing that at scale largely comes by decentralizing that whole innovation process. And the innovation process decentralization starts by having each team directly work with customers. I think that's really interesting. Obviously, you know, another Amazon leadership principle is customer obsession. And what I'm hearing is that to really simplify and innovate on behalf of the customer, you have to have that customer obsession. You can't do the one without the other. I'd like to talk a little bit about the use of data and anecdote to Amazon. And obviously, Amazon is known broadly as being a source of lots of data and using lots of data in its decisions. Jeff Bezos at one time, though, said, when the anecdotes and the data disagree, the anecdotes are usually right. 
Can you talk a little bit more about how anecdotes were being used in addition to data? Yeah. Amazon is obviously obsessed with data. A lot of our leaders are. I am. I kind of follow that sword. But the problem with that sometimes is when you try to do a lot of things at scale, a lot of little things can get lost. You start looking at averages. You start looking at things and say, okay, overall things are good. But out of a lot of people, a couple of people may not be having a good experience. And that what I see as the blind spots of the algorithm, especially when you are using large, complex algorithms, you run into the blind spots that are not obvious and it doesn't make it to the metrics. And uh, that's why the anecdotes become so important. And so from our perspective, I mean, a couple of processes we do was we have our weekly team reviews, like we used to have a metrics review every week. And one of the last slide of that was like really going after the anecdotes of each customers. And so what we do is when we bring up that anecdote and kind of really say what happened in that particular scenario and what was the gap that happened. And there are a couple of examples I can think of. One was we rolled out this new labor planning system, right? A system that kind of completely automate how do we bring people into, into the fulfillment system, you know, warehouses. And we found that it was getting overridden several times. And if you look at all of our metrics and measurements on that, it never shows up on why that is happening. And systems can always justify why that is happening. But as we started talking to the local managers, it came to know that you know some of the local events are not being captured into our planning systems, and they are very localized, and that hardly happens in each of that area that might be different, and there is no central authority where we can pull that data in. And so how do we insert that kind of information and system into the into the data? So we had to come up with a new system where we can capture that more manually so we can insert into the system. But it's super important for us to think that, you know, especially when we are looking at the data and metrics, don't get lost in the averages. Don't look at those. Pay attention to customers. Pay attention to experience that of individual customers and how it is impacting individuals. And you will learn a lot from that. Yeah, you mentioned a little bit earlier blind spots. And I think that example is great. It's illustrating how focusing on those customer anecdotes can expose those blind spots that the KPI table or the report or the review might be ignoring just because of the average or the aggregate, that outlier doesn't show up, which could be a sign of a defect. I want to go back to this last line of the leadership principle that says, as we do new things, we accept that we may be understood for long periods of time. Did you ever have... A time in your career at Amazon where you felt that what you were building or what you were working on was something that wouldn't be understood right away, but was this long-term play that would take a while to fully be understood? There are a couple of those. And in fact, most of them, I feel like, you know, you'd go through that cycle just because, you know, most of the things we want to do at Amazon end up taking a it's large impact and it's cross-functional. So almost everything you do, there is always going to be some level of skepticism from different group of different kind of people. And then you need the perseverance to drive through that. For example, when we wanted to move to more automation in the fulfillment centers, we had to change the core system that runs the fulfillment centers, right? the warehouse management system. So we came up with this new model called fulfillment operating system. So we said, okay, how do we make the entire fulfillment work like a computer, right? Like how do we feed all the 
different inputs and constraints and all the working process into this one and it all worked together as one system so it's like an operating system that make the whole warehouse work and the concept is great but it's a lot of work right a lot of different pieces need to come together and you cannot change to that overnight so how do we really drive that change where do we start how do we make sure that it's doable how do we make sure that we can have result we can see results and then create put a, a, a you know a course of action to drive and proceed with that so that from the beginning got a lot of resistance in the process but you know we continue to build you know focusing on the core foundations and investing in the base infrastructure identifying the most impactful use cases staying focused on that and delivering that and then continue to provide value and then use that as an example to expand into more levels and layers it's kind of what is needed and as a leader most of the time you have to have conviction you have to first do your homework really understand what's going on and then develop strong conviction based on all the things you see and then obviously you know you can course correct as you see and adapt but you need to have that conviction to like move it forward sometimes it takes longer than you like but you still need to have the patience and i really like the term be strategically patient but tactically impatient right now sometimes when you want to drive big things and you know where you want to go you don't need to achieve all of that like today you are patient in achieving that larger objective but then you break it down into smaller pieces that you want to get done like right now that you have to relentlessly go after it so you know be strategically patient to achieve your bigger objectives but tactically impatient so that you can power through things and get things done prove it and continue to get buy in and go after i love that quote having the conviction to be strategically patient as I imagine in your role, Maju, a lot of your ability to create that growth and create that innovation came from scaling beyond your own purview and the meetings that you were in and, and the things that you had your hands on, but empowering the directors and managers and those that were underneath you to do the same with their teams. How, as a leader, did you think about helping those underneath you uh, managing their own teams to have that same conviction, to have that same strategic patience? Yeah, I mean, first of all, as any leader, the number one thing you need to focus on is having the right people around you any role i have taken you know i invest a lot in people and i spend a lot of time with them and i and, and i always think that i'm only as good as the people around me so try to hire smarter people than me and uh, surround myself with great people so it's investing in people is i see as the number one task of any leader or at least for me I, that's how i work on and when i say really good people those are the people who are problem solvers who wants to create an impact you know who are the people who can look at impact or process right now like how do we the people who know how to get things done and wants to get things done and the second aspect is the culture you really need to set the culture at the top and you really need to tell what's important to the team and you need to communicate that constantly and you cannot waver from that right now you cannot change your mind on you know, what's important for you every single day so you need to like communicate that constantly to the team and so having the right people and setting the culture is kind of super important now from amazon way which is something i learned as i went to amazon is the concept of mechanisms right so once you have good people and and a good culture you go after mechanisms and mechanisms are really something that allows your teams to operate at scale 
So, for example, simple things like, you know, Amazon has this good practice, which I took with myself everywhere, is you start a meeting with success stories. If you're in the operations, you start with a safety-dependent success story right after. The success story one is good because, for example, when I started with my big role at Amazon and we started with success story, a lot of people didn't have a lot to say. Like, we didn't have a lot of success stories to share. So I made a point that we'll just have quiet time for the first five minutes. If people don't have success stories, we'll all sit there and stare at each other and make everybody feel uncomfortable. <laughs> and so uh, we just said that for a couple of weeks and, and months. And then over time, everybody got that, you know, I'm serious about it. And, you know, we are going to come back with success stories. And so then slowly enough, you know, people start bringing up success stories to a level where, you know, we needed more than five minutes. Sometimes we need 10 minutes to just talk about success stories. But that all trickles down, right? You know, because for them to come up with success stories, they need to talk to their team and then their team need to come up with success stories. It creates a culture of impact because the ability to say success stories says that somebody understood the impact because you cannot just say success stories, I brought some code or I deployed code or something like that. You have to like say why it matters. So you have to think through that. So kind of forcing that function, taking it all the way down into the team. So the way you scale is just by doing those. I mean, the right people have the strong culture, set up good mechanism, and then live it, you know, like set an example and force it all the way down to the team. And then magic happens. That's an awesome example of a mechanism and one that nearly any team could implement. So I, I really love that. I want to fast forward a bit, Maju. We only have a few minutes left, but I want to talk a bit now about your current role at Bolt. And maybe to set the context, can you tell us a little bit about what Bolt does and what made you decide to move from Amazon over to a startup? Now, Amazon is a great company. And I, you know, I had a fantastic career. I learned a lot. I continue to grow there. So Amazon is awesome. But you know, then what I realized also is that there is something about building things from the ground up right now, like really going to the ground floor and shaping a product, building it from the ground up without the infrastructure support like Amazon. Like, you know, Amazon, we say we act like a startup. And in a lot of ways we do, but in reality, we don't right now because there is a lot of help and support you get. You can go ping a lot of different teams. There are other people and there's a lot of infrastructure that you can get support from. So there is an element of like building things from the ground up it kind of always had in my mind. And I did that even before coming to Amazon. So I went from Microsoft, then I kind of did SUO, a startup, and then came to Amazon. So I always had that back in my mind. And second is like, it's an interesting time to be in startups, right? Like right now, you look at companies like Bolt or anybody, the, the private markets are very efficient. There's a lot of capital available. It's a lot of innovation happening in the private markets. Like before, a lot of these innovations used to happen within the large companies. And now that the private markets are much more efficient, a lot of innovations are happening outside too. And so it's a great time to be in a startup. If you want, want to start a startup or to join a startup, it's a great time for it. And, and I expect that to continue for at least this decade. It's just getting started. It's not ending right now, right? It's just going to continue to evolve and, and move in that. And the third element for Bolt is Bolt is in this very interesting field of e-commerce and payments. So it's a fintech startup and it's in a hyper growth mode. It provides, as you said, one click checkout to merchants. And so for you know, Amazon set the bar high or what is the experience customers look for when you want to buy online. So a lot of other merchants are struggling to kind of go, okay, how do we 
can I compete with that and do that? So Paul's mission is to say, how can we provide that kind of experience for all other merchants so that customers get that same kind of great experience of buying from Amazon? How can they get from other places too? So there are more choices and more options for everybody. And so Bolt is a very well-funded company, and it has some strong financial backers like General Atlantic. And it is a great founder, Ryan Breslow, who I started talking to. And, you know, initially leaving Amazon, if you ask me like, you know, six months before I left Amazon about will I leave Amazon or consider any other job, I would say absolutely not, right? Because I was having a great time. And then, you know, as I spoke to Ryan, uh, uh, you know, and continue to talk to him, it took me around five, six months for me to make up my mind. But, you know, as I learned more and I thought through all of this and I was like, I got more excited and more interested and I see the future, right? You know, I see that there is a way that Invent and Simplify and being misunderstood for some time, both coming in as a checkout platform has a lot of opportunity to like really grow. And I kind of say Bolt is the, at the intersection of e-commerce and payments. So we have an opportunity to connect all the shopping carts and all the payment companies and kind of be that linch point to connect both of them. And at the same time, create a great customer experience. We keep track of all the customer accounts and that account network is growing really fast, which means we can provide that one-click checkout experience across different merchants. So Bolt is really building out some core shopping uh, e-commerce infrastructure that will help change the way people buy online quite a bit. And I'm very excited to be be on the ground floor with that and take a very talented group of our engineers and product people through that journey and see what we can do here. It certainly sounds exciting. I mean, you're really at the nucleus of everything that is e-commerce. Everything needs a checkout, everything needs payment processing. And so to be at that intersection uh, is really exciting because you know as e-commerce continues to grow, those solutions are always going to be imperatively important. Yeah, Bolt probably has its own principles and values and it, of course isn't the same as Amazon. But as you reflect back on the eight years you've had at Amazon, what elements of Invent and Simplify that you practice at Amazon are you finding helpful in your current role? Yeah, I mean, almost everything, right? I mean, I, I think the whole Invent and Simplify customer obsession are things that I feel like almost you can transplant to any company and uh, and, and you can use it as is. For example, Bolt also is a very culturally strong organization. So we have our values. A lot of it is, you know, foundationally very similar to Amazon values, but we word it differently. And it, there are subtle differences, but a lot of similarities too. On the Invent and Simplify side, you know, allowing the teams to connect directly with customers and having them really solve the problems, understand the problems and really solving the problem are really there. So there's a lot of connection between the engineers and the customers directly. And then number two is like driving programs, like a hackathon. Like, you know, we just had a hackathon two weeks ago. And it was amazing to see the whole company worked on things for like two days. And a lot of them didn't even sleep all night. They came back to like, you know, they pulled an all-nighter. And most of them worked across teams that they typically doesn't work together. And they solved completely new problems, never really solved before. And then having fun doing that was fascinating to see. And then it's that impact culture, right? You know, we say, feel free to be wrong, but we want to go for 10x growth. So kind of that culture of allowing people to experiment 
telling people that it's okay to fail. And we really want to double down on the success what we are seeing. And so that is the culturally important aspect that kind of put it all together, you know, in my head. So really creating that experimental atmosphere, take out the fear of failure and really going after big opportunities and doubling down on them. Those are things Bold does. And I feel like Amazon also does as well. So I felt like, you know, I'm kind of walking into the similar culture that way and enhancing that and continue to double down on that. One of the things that I picked up as a trend across a lot of your different comments here, Majo, is that you really approach innovation and simplifying and inventing as something that should be fun. Celebrating successes, holding hackathons, really enjoying that problem-solving process. As we wrap up, what advice would you have for listeners that may be wanting to develop a more innovative mindset in their own work? I would say, number one, hire problem solvers right now, like hire people who like to have an impact. And you can know that by just asking them the question. Like interviews, I ask a simple question. Give me an example of an impact you created. And they tell about some project. I'm like, no, start with impact. Like, you know, what was that impact? And then work backwards from there. And so you can just easily differentiate the people who just like to do some work versus the people who like to solve problems and create impact. So having the right people. And number two is allowing them to create the impact. I told this when I joined Bolt, call me, not the CTO, call me the chief unblocking officer, right? You know, my job is not find all the answers for you. My job is allowing you to go and innovate right now. And so I will unblock it. Whatever is blocking you guys, come back and tell me, I'll unblock it. So find the great people, let them do, and then connect the people directly with customers, right? Now, don't create layers and layers of things between them. Let the people who are solving the problem be close to the problem itself. And so that they are connected. And then finally, that culture piece I talked about, which is allowing people to fail. It's okay to take some bets. It's okay to fail as long as we learn from it quickly and doubling down on the success that we are seeing. That to me is the framework right now. Like, and that's what I have used. And you, you're right. Picking about I mean, when we do this well, it is a lot of fun. You got to be excited about this. You got to have that fire. You, know, you should have fun doing all of this. And when you do that, I've seen it work at both with small engineering team. And I see this work with Amazon with thousands of engineers. I don't think the fundamentals change. Maybe the scale changes, but the core things I have learned and I have used hasn't changed, whether it's a large or a small company. Well, Maju, this conversation has been a lot of fun. So thanks again. And, and thanks for all of your ideas, your perspective, your tips that you've shared. Where can listeners go to follow you or learn more about Bolt? Yeah, I mean, it's startbybold.com. We are hiring a lot, uh, you know, looking for some great engineers and product people. And so look at Bold, look at our career pages. Follow me on LinkedIn. I'm trying to be active on LinkedIn. I'm not that active in most of the other places. And please look at Bold. I mean, I think, it, you know, it's a great time at Bold and we have some great problems to solve. We have to move really fast. So we are looking at some great engineers from doing and we hire across all of the US and Canada. So that's my little pitch right there. Thanks again, Maju. It's been great having you on the show and I uh, hope you enjoy the rest of your evening. Yeah, thank you, Tyler, for inviting me again. And you know, you have a great show. So all the best. 